I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. Our Heavenly Father, we confess before you that this word that you have given in human vessels is indeed a revelation of your own will through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we would like to understand it. Uh, I pray that the Spirit of God will be here, that you will not merely illumine our mind, but that you will inspire our mind, that you will be our real teacher. And Lord, I pray you'll keep me from making mistakes, but if I do, I pray that you will hold your hand over them. And that only the truth as it is in Jesus will come out and shine uh, gloriously, Father. Not just so we can have an intellectual understanding, but so it can become a glorious part of our life and our living. So we thank you for Galatians. We thank you for raising up the Apostle Paul. We know he's sleeping now, waiting for Jesus to come. How Jesus must long to see him. And I pray that we'll help finish the work, that we'll understand at the heart of all that we finish is this great understanding of how we are saved by your grace through faith and not of ourselves. For it is the gift of God in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, I want to start. If you have your Bibles, uh, I hope you're all in a position that you can see the whiteboard here because I am going to use it, I promise, this afternoon. So, uh, and it will be crucial to what we're talking about. So for whatever its reason, if you don't have a good eye for it, you might want to move to find a place for it. Our second part on Galatians, uh, part two on Galatians, obviously we can't cover the whole book, but we're covering parts of it. And I'm looking at chapter three. Chapter three, looking at verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians. Once again, you can hear Paul's passion coming through. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? That tells us that there's a struggle. The truth has a struggle from the forces of light and the forces of darkness. There's an unseen thing going on here. And so that's why we pray when we open the scriptures. You don't, you don't, you know, the problem is that people approach the scriptures and think that they can figure out how, what this thing says and what it uh, teaches. The truth is they cannot. And that's a very, very dangerous ground to go on. That's why you never open the scriptures without prayer. And not just prayer as a formality, but prayer that says, Lord, please be my real teacher. I open my mind and heart to you. Open my eyes so that I can understand your word. I make myself subject to your word. I want to obey your word. I put myself to be judged and taught by your word. And so there is certainly a great controversy going on here. Who has bewitched you? He says, who's taken away from you? And we're going to see why he says that. Skipping down just a, a little bit, if you please. All of this is important, but for sake of time, we cannot uh, linger there. Verse 7, therefore know that only those who... Uh, I should have gone to verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What does the word account mean? It means, in this, it means credited. It means given to your account. Now, here's our problem. If I, by the way, he says something similar uh, later in the book of Romans. And if I were there, my wife is a CPA. She's an accountant. And uh, so there's some things I, I know a little bit about this, but I don't claim to know everything about this. I've got one of those wonderful jobs when tax season comes. She just says, sign here, and I sign that. <laughs> so... Now remember, this is not a preaching session. This is a teaching session, okay? So I'm, I'm not, I'm, we're not preaching this afternoon. We're teaching. So as you have questions as we go along, I want you to feel free to raise your hand 
and I'll try to get to this question. If I get too many, though, I'll get bogged down, and I won't get down to the punchline, because I do want to get to the punchline of Galatians. Uh, what is the, the real theme of Galatians? At any rate, uh, the, here, here's our problem. Our problem is that we don't just have zero in our account of righteousness. We're in debt. We have mega, mega debt when it comes to righteousness. That's why we cannot save ourselves. You, you can never pay the debt. You, you, can't, you can't live eternally and pay the debt. So you have to have somebody that comes along that has righteousness that can be accredited to your account. Now the beautiful thing about what Jesus does is that he not only comes and pays the debt, he not only brings you up to zero, but he makes available the merits of his life for the rest of your life. Isn't that good news? So I am, I am running not on the merits of saints. Thank you, our dear Catholic friends. I'm not running on the merits of saints because the saints can't save me. They don't have any merit. They can't even save themselves, so how can they save me? I don't need your indulgences, but what I do need is Jesus, who not only brings me up to zero, but he makes me very rich in righteousness because I can call on his righteousness. You know, when my prayers come up before God, it is mingled with the sweet influence of his life. His merit goes with my prayers. That's why God will even hear me. Otherwise, God wouldn't even hear me. But he hears me because he's given me his only begotten son. Isn't that nice, the Heavenly Father? Giving me his only begotten son so I can have the son's merits so when I pray, he can hear me. And that's, that's good news. So that word account is very, very important, credited to our account. Looking down to verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Now, I, I want to say that he's simply talking about a system. He's talking to the Jewish mind here, and he's also talking to a Gentile mind. But he's simply saying to them, this is a system. In other words, the Jewish people figured that if you kept the rituals, kept yourself clean, you did all the right things, if you participate in the temple service like you were supposed to, you would be saved. That's why the Pharisees were so so intent on getting this thing right, and that's why they looked at the common people and said they don't have a chance. They don't have a chance. This is an uneducated rabble. They're all going to hell anyway. So, I mean, that's kind of the mindset of the Pharisees. But we've got it made because we're doing everything just right. If we can get this thing just right, we're going to be saved. That's the way they thought. So this was a system, you understand, a system of salvation by works because the Jewish people had perverted their system. You're going to see why, how that perversion comes in in just a little bit. Um, and, and let me go on down here. No one is justified. Verse 11, no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Now, I, I want to say that, uh, and I want to reemphasize again, it was reemphasized, I see my good friend Brother Preby here, uh, and we were talking together. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. I didn't ask his permission, but we were both affirming the fact as we were doing a little discussion that you are justified by faith and you are sanctified by faith. There's no other way for that to happen. Uh, so the just always, in justification, in sanctification, they are always justified. They're always living by faith. 
In fact, the whole issue at the heart of it is to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians again, who loved me. So if I'm living by faith in him who gave himself for me, I'm trusting his sacrifice. Am I not? I'm trusting his merits. Am I not? I'm trusting in everything that he's done for me. Am I not? And then I am trusting to grow in Christ by his grace and by his power. So I'm trusting his power. I'm trusting not only his redeeming Savior work, I'm also trusting his lordship of my life. And that's, that's the testing thing. A lot of people are willing to take Jesus as a Savior, but they don't want to take him as a Lord. Now I want to underline this. You can't have it that way. There, the great delusion in the Christian world today is that somehow you can have Jesus as your Savior, but not have him as your Lord. That somehow I can be in charge of my own life. You, can't, you cannot do that. I wish I had time to talk about the will and how, how the will is to be used. Okay, let me move right down here. Verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So if you choose to be saved by a system of works, then that's, you're just going to have to fulfill it. Now, you've got a big problem. Yeah, the Pharisees got a big problem. And here's the big problem. The big problem is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and they cannot keep all that ritual perfectly. So if you decide you're going to be saved by it, you've got a huge problem. Because the minute you violate it, but you know, human pride sometimes keeps us at it, doesn't it? Verse 13, for Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now what is the curse? It's the death penalty. There's a penalty. You violate the law of God, there's a penalty. Thou shalt not. So have we all broken God's law? All of sin comes short of the glory of God? So we all stand under the death penalty. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he redeem us from the death penalty? This is a fascinating statement. Having become the curse of for us. How did he come become the curse for us? According to Romans chapter 6, I don't know how he did it, and I don't want to go there because I can't understand it. All I know is he wrapped himself in my, his, in my old carnal nature, exposed it to the wrath of God, the justice of God, the judicial anger of God, and it died. So Christ becomes the curse. How can this be? That's substitution again. I talked about substitution a little bit yesterday. And this is a big problem. This text is a huge problem for some of this. And I talked a little bit about it yesterday, but I want to talk about it a little bit more for the moment. This concept that has swept in from every direction, it seems. It swept in from, from liberal Protestantism who did not want to believe that God could have judicial anger. They wanted to believe. That's where it all starts. God, God's not, God loves everybody. Absolutely God loves everybody. I was just reading, though, in, in um, I, want, I think it's Desire of Ages, in, in, the, in the chapter on it, it is finished, that from God's love flows, listen to this, from God's love flows both His justice and His mercy. So his justice is a revelation of his love just as much as his mercy is a revelation of his love. 
And I'm, I'm grateful for God's justice. Do you, know why, do you know why I'm grateful for God's justice? Because God's justice is a guarantee the sin thing is going to come to an end. That it, is a, it is a guarantee that sin is not going to crop up again in the universe. It is a guarantee that God... I, I'll tell you, the whole plan of salvation, and this is marvelous to me. I mean, you, you've, you can think about this. This is marvelous to me. I, I can't grasp it, but it's marvelous. And that is that the plan of salvation will actually allow God to have a universe that's sinless and free. You want to be part of that? I do. Sinless and free. Christ became the curse for us, became our substitute stepped in our place, took God's penalty, took the penalty at Calvary's cross. I don't have time to talk about Peter's sermon at the day of Pentecost, some other time perhaps. But um, that, that takes away any of this concept that God has no justice, that he has no judicial anger. God does have a judicial anger. Hey, listen, I want to say it as clearly. In any gospel that tells you different is a perverted gospel. God, our holy heavenly Father, hates sin. And, and, and if, you, if we can't figure out why, we just need to open our eyes. I mean, just look at us. Look at us. We're all, as one person said, we're all old age positive. Look what's happening to us. I mean, just ride by a graveyard. I, I mean, the world's a mess. I, there'd be something wrong with God if he said, oh, you know, it's not so bad. He says it's horrible. So he has judicial anger toward it, and he's going to wipe it out. Hallelujah. But he doesn't want to wipe out his children. You see, you know, God has, I could spend the rest of the afternoon on this, and I don't want to do that. But, you know, you remember the illustration of my grandmother and the snakes? And the snakes she chopped up with a hoe? Remember that? God has a problem. I know the theologians will say, oh, God doesn't have a problem. Okay, just, just spot me that, okay? God has a problem. The snake is his children. Aren't you glad that God doesn't love us only because of his emotions, but he loves us because it's a principle of his life? And he says, I'm not going to let them go. They, they might be filled with snake-like habits, but I'm going to save them by the gift of my only begotten son, and he'll go down, he'll become the curse. He's sinless, but he becomes the curse, takes the blow, and then I can forgive them. But I'm not only going to forgive them, 
I'm going to transform them. Last general conference theme was using the word transformed in Christ. We become new creatures. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, when you justify it, it's not just some little thing on the books up there. I understand forensic justification. I understand the legal issues, et cetera, et cetera. But it's more than that. It is actually a new birth. And then because of that new birth, we have the privilege of entering into sanctification, into the walk with Christ, into the pursuit of, of, of Christ's holiness. Let me say something to these folk that believe that God has no judicial anger and that Jesus, therefore, didn't have to pay a penalty. You see the logic of what they're going there. And here's, here, here's some... And by the way, if, if you want a really good book on this, it's a non-Adventist, but uh, I think he's still alive, and that's John Stott called The Cross of Christ. The first chapter, just skip it. The... the the rest of the book's pretty much of a hallelujah chorus, in my, and, and you'll, you'll get a good understanding of this whole concept that's going around and it's so, so powerful. He, 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 he nails this thing down from a scripture standpoint. But um, when I say hallelujah chorus, I'm talking about as far as this particular subject is concerned. Um, this, this whole concept that, that God has no judicial, judicial anger, therefore there's no penalty, and so then you ask the question, why did Jesus die on Calvary's cross? Stott uses an illustration, I think, that's very powerful. He, he says, well, you know, they argue that Christ died on Calvary's cross to show us how awful sin was. And then he asks the question. He says, if you have a child, and these are kind of my words, if you have a child that's drowning and somebody swims out there and saves the child's life, but in the process of saving the child's life, loses their own life. What do you call that person? A hero. But what if that person stood on the shore, there's nobody drowning, and he says, you know, I, I, I want to show you how terrible it is to drown, and so I'm going to go out and I'm going to drown. I think I heard it from the audience. You know, and Stott says, well, what do you call that person? A, a fool, that's foolishness, isn't it? Well, why are we ascribing that kind of foolishness to the God of heaven? He didn't send his only begotten son to die on his cross to show us how bad sin was. Thank you, we knew. We're burying our parents. We're burying our children. We're burying the world around us. Hello, we know how awful this stuff is. Where is it? I'll tell you, because, because the cross of Christ is, is um, foolishness to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jew. It's a, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to the Jew because the Jew says, no, you've got, you got to do the rituals. I mean, yes, it's nice to have Jesus, but we really got to do the rituals in order to be saved. They cannot just understand that they, the rituals cannot save and to the Greek, it is foolishness. Are, are you so, I mean, come on. You don't think the gods would come down and sacrifice themselves for us lower human beings? And that's foolishness to even think about it. So Paul is right. And what we have in this modern moral influence theory that Jesus doesn't pay the penalty for our sins, what we have in that is Gentile 
pagan philosophy. Let's call it what it is. It is not biblical. It is pagan. It's pagan thinking. You got quiet. Somebody should have said amen. I don't know if you understand what I said. This concept of moral influence, that Jesus did not die to pay for the penalty of our sins, is an unbiblical, pagan, anti-Adventist teaching. In our 28 fundamental beliefs, we believe clearly in a substitutionary atonement. So Christ becomes the curse. If you lose faith in that, heaven help you. Because it's your only hope. Curses everyone that hangs on the tree. Why did Christ become the curse? Why did he become our substitute? Why did he pay the penalty? By the way, if people attack the cross of Christ and Jesus paying the penalty for our sins, if they'll attack that, there's nothing that's sacred. Let, let me tell you what the... And Ellen White says the same thing. She, her and John Stott almost, almost word for word. This is holy, sacred ground. This is the heart and the essence of the gospel. That, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. That God in Christ sacrificed himself to his own justice and set us free. That is holy ground. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. You're reading your Bible with me? Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant which was confirmed before God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by, by promise. So what is he saying? What he's simply saying, by the way, I make no apologies for defending the cross of Christ. And, I, and I'll tell you something else. If the Apostle Peter can get exercised, Apostle Paul can get exercised and write about Paul's hypocrisy, then we start should call people to accountability for teaching stuff that's totally and completely unbiblical and anti to our very salvation. We need to call people to accountability for that.
um, something as blatant as that. Uh, let me let me go to um, to the mountain. This is this is Mount Sinai. My pardon my my writing here, my drawing. I'm I'm not kin to Nathan Green. But this is Mount Sinai, and of course, this is where the Ten Commandments came from and so forth. The whole sanctuary system came from Mount Sinai. And then you, you have uh, many years later, and you come to, well, let me go back. No, 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 no. Let me go back here. I'll get this right in a minute. This is Abraham. A is for Abraham. I knew something was wrong here. <laughs> you with me? A is for Abraham. Okay, God made a promise to Abraham, and he says, you're going to be saved by putting your trust in me. Is that right? He says, you put your trust in me, here's the promise, inheritance. You get the inheritance, it's made to, to your... And then, then you have Mount Sinai comes here 430 years later. So what Paul is saying in Galatians is that whatever happened at Mount Sinai does not undo the promise, does it? So whatever the function and the role of Mount Sinai is, it doesn't make a new system of salvation. Does that make sense? So whatever Mount Sinai is, it doesn't undo what God has already done to Abraham. Still with me? All right. Now let's go on. Verse 19, he asks the logical question. What purpose then does the law serve? Now, I said yesterday that that law includes all of the sanctuary service. That's what we're talking about. Somebody says, you don't really mean the Ten Commandments. I said, yes, it's in there. And if you'll, be, if you'll stay with me, it'll turn out all right. It's both ceremonial law and it is the moral law. By the way, you really, it, there are two different functions, but they function together. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in just a moment. In a little bit. It was added, here he gives the answer to it, verse 19, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So in other words, the law serves, came was added, Mount Sinai was added because of why? Because of transgressions. In other words, it serves a function because of this increase in sin and it was going to last until the appearance of the mediator, which is Calvary's cross. You with me? So now you have the promise to Abraham, then you have Sinai, but Sinai doesn't undo what God promised, neither does it introduce a new system of salvation and, and this Mount Sinai's function lasts until the cross. Now let's go on and see what else he has to say. Keep losing my place. Here we go, verse 20. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? He's returning to that. Is Mount Sinai now against the promises of God that were saved by faith? And then he gives that powerful answer. In the old King James it says... God forbid, I kind of like that. In this new King James, it says, certainly not. For if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. 
Now, that is a powerful statement because what God is saying is, why would I want to give through the Apostle Paul? Why would I want to give my only begotten son to Calvary's cross? Why would I want him to become the curse? Why would I want him to suffer the judicial wrath that the sinner ought to suffer? Why would I put him through all of that? Why would I give him as a gift to the human race? Why would I do that if I could simply make a law that you could obey and you would have life? That makes sense? So that's why the law cannot give life. Even though the Apostle Paul says in another place in the book of Romans that it's the law of life, and it is the law of life. But once you've broken it, remember, we're dealing with people who've broken the law of God. So you can't make a law after somebody's broke the law that they can obey so there's no ritual that you can put together. There's no amount of sacrifices that you... It doesn't matter if you kill a thousand bulls and sacrifice them. It is not... If you, if you sacrifice your own son and your own daughter, it cannot atone for the sin of your soul. There is no ritual that you can accomplish. By the way, that was a quote from one of the Old Testament prophets. Kind of a quote. There's nothing you can do, there's no law God can make that you can keep that can deliver your soul. That has to get firmly implanted uh, in our mind here. Now let's, let's go on. Verse 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin, all of sin comes short of the glory of God, that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Notice that you get the promise if you have faith in Christ. Am I right? Verse 23, but before faith came, now here he uses faith in the sense of Christ being the uh, sacrifice on Calvary's cross for our, for our sins. He he's, uses faith as when faith came, when Christ came, when the mediator came, when the seed came, when the, uh, uh, the Messiah came. That's what it means there when it says when faith came. Did they have faith before the cross? Yes, but now we're talking about faith in Christ Jesus as the Messiah. Before faith came... We were kept under guard by the law, that's Mount Sinai, kept for faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, verse 24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So now he's saying that the, there was a purpose for Mount Sinai, and it was a wonderful purpose. Mount Sinai was here to take care of us, take care of Israel until Jesus should show up. Now, I'd like to explain this out of a personal experience. When uh, we had our little girl, uh, we were in Wichita, Kansas. I was pastoring in Wichita, Kansas. My wife's a CPA. She's working all part-time. And so we had a couple of grandparent-like wonderful people uh, in the church that took care of our little girl, Harlan and Donna Stearns. And um, so there were a couple of afternoons a week that 
that you would hear a conversation. They keep her for maybe two, two afternoons a week, maybe three afternoons a week. But about five o'clock, you would hear this kind of conversation. Hi, honey, it's me. Yes, right. Well, you know, I think I could go get the baby tonight. And then on the other end, you'd hear, no, I think I'll go get the baby tonight. And then you'd hear me say, but you know, if I went and got the baby tonight, you could get home sooner and get supper fixed. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and, and I'd say, no, you know, she'd say, no, I want to go get the baby. So we'd compromise, and we'd say, well, let's both go get the baby. <laughs> so why were we doing this? Uh, I'd like to suggest to you that Mount Sinai was given to be a babysitter. That makes sense? In other words, and I want to ask the question, are, are babysitters bad? No, they're good. Normally they should be good, am I right? And uh, Donna Starlin-Hearns, we love them. My little girl loved them. In fact, uh, he had two, back then, two hips that had been replaced, so he had kind of a funny walk. And so she's about two years old, so she's walking behind him in the garden, and she just, she mimics his walk, you know. <laughs> My wife always took a clean change of clothes, so that after she got through playing in the afternoon and after her nap, uh, Donna would put her in the clean clothes before we came to pick her up, and uh, so she was all ready. And then she would stand her in, in the front of the glass door to watch for our car to come in. And when our car would come in, drive in the driveway, our little girl would start clapping her hands and doing her little turns and jumps up and down. And it was that little experience my wife and I were saying... And that's why God gave Mount Sinai. God gave Mount Sinai. Now, by the way, do you think Harlan and Dona made their own rules for the baby, or did they make our rules? They made our rules. That was all synchronized. So the child is not confused. The babysitter is hired by the parent to do what the parent wants done. Am I right? The babysitter doesn't do what the babysitter wants to do. The babysitter is in place of the parent. That's why Mount Sinai was given. That's why God put the Ten Commandments on, on stone. That's why he gave the ceremonial system. It was so that they would understand what the real parent was like. If you want to understand the Heavenly Father, you understand in that context, in that day, you, you study the sanctuary. You understand what he's like. Now I want to ask a question. What if... When we went to pick up the baby, the baby clung to the neck of the babysitter and began to cry and weep and say, I don't want to go, I want to stay here. I want to ask a question. How would we feel? I want to tell you that that's exactly what ancient Israel did. The problem wasn't with the babysitter. The problem was with the baby. They clung to the babysitter. 
Now, by the time of Jesus, Israel had totally perverted that system. By the way, Sinai was given not as a system of works. Remember, Paul already has said that was not to undo the promises. It was given as a system of faith, but they made it into a system of works. Now, now Paul punches this home when he goes, um, when he goes on just a little further here. Verse, uh, verse uh, 26 uh, for all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ. It's faith in Christ now that where we find our hope. By the way, he's the, he's the real parent. He's really come in those beautiful texts of verse 28 and 29. But I'm going to go to chapter 4 for sake of time, and I want to I punch in on this because he, 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 he reviews this. And he, and he gives the illustration. He says, what if, what if you have a child? In our, in our conference, as most conferences, we have a trust department, and we have parents who make trust with us or wills with us. And this is not an actual case, but it's a, it's a proverbial case. It could be a real case. But it's, let's say that you have two parents, and they come in, and they say, okay, here, here's our trust. Uh, we're putting in a million dollars into this trust. This trust, uh, it, now, if something happens to the both of us, then this is what we want to have to happen, the million dollars. First of all, we do not want Johnny to get this when he gets 18. We want this money to be spent for Johnny's education, for Johnny's care. When he gets 30, he can get 25% of it. When he gets 40 and has a little bit more sense, he can get half of it and, you know, that kind of stuff. So we agree to that. We're, we're the, we're the uh, trustors and are the, if I get that right, the trustees towards, so I should have that right by now. But anyway, we're the ones that are responsible for holding this in trust. And so the, the awful thing happens Johnny loses his parents at 17. He walks into our office and said, I'm 18. And he says, I want the money. And we say, we're sorry. The only way you can get this money is for us to take care of you, make sure your bills are paid, or so forth, for your living expense, and you get a college education. You can go to the university. We're going to pay all of those bills for you. All that's taken care of. He says, no, you don't understand. That's my money because my parents... We said, we know that's your money, but your parents have a, an agreement with us that you're not going to get it. Well, he says, I, I don't think that's right. It's my money, and you should let me have it. Besides, I've got a brand-new Corvette that I've got found down at the dealer, and I want to buy the brand-new Corvette. We said, that's precisely why you're not going to get it. <laughs> because you can't be trusted. You need somebody to look after you. Do you get some sense? I, I'm being very blunt here, direct. And uh, so it doesn't matter how much he screams and pleads and begs and he can take us to court if he wants, but he's not going to get that money. Why? Because we have a legal trust to keep him under our care until such a time as he grows up. And the parent says he can have it according to the terms. That's exactly the way, in a sense, that Sinai functioned. It functioned as the trustee. It's another illustration trying to tell us that the Sinai kept Israel under its care, it was given to Israel until Jesus, the real one, should show up, or until such a time as faith came. Now, that's, that's the picture. Now, I want to skip down because I, I want to I see, I want you to go this, get this home here. Now, if you look under verse 3, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Question and answer, what are elements? Come on, you got some scientists in here. What are elements? Name one. Yeah. It's a, isn't that an element? It's metal. Uh, the world we're surrounded with elements. So we're under elements. 
Yeah, okay. Let's go. We'll, we'll, yeah, I know that gives that. But, but I want to punch down now to verse 8. You'll see where I'm coming from in just a second. But then, when you did not know God... Now he's talking to the Gentiles. He's talking to them in their, when they were pagans. He's reminding them of the fact that they at one time... He's not talking to Jews now. He's talking to these converted pagans. But, now, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God. So what were these pagans? They were nature worshipers. So what did they worship? Elements. But now, after you've been converted, after you have known God, or rather are known of God, how is it that you turn again to weak and beggarly elements in which you desire to be in bondage again? Oh, let's, get, let's get this clear. I want to ask a question. What was the sanctuary made out of? Elements. Good. It's made out of elements. Were we under its control until Christ came? And was those ele- were those elements perverted by the Jews so they came to the place they clung to the neck of the babysitter and actually trusted the elements for their salvation and the rituals that went with it? Is that true? So now he says to the pagans, you were similar. You were worshiping the trees and the rocks and the whatever. And we delivered you into Christ by faith. You found salvation in Him. Now tell me why you want to get back under elements again. We always want something we can do. There is something we do, but it's the result of our salvation and not the cause of our salvation. And if we are saved by faith, faith is is active. Faith moves into action. You cannot have faith without action. It's impossible. The book of James says faith without works is what? Another way of saying it is not faith. Show me your works by your faith. James is not contradicting here, he's just simply saying, if you've got faith, it'll turn into something. But the works are the result of faith and trust. Am I right? Amen. Let me give you an example. Let's see, I am in California. We're sitting in this building, comfortable as can be. Am I right? If the ground began to shake, what would happen? May- Maybe, maybe you're different than a Michigander. But let me tell you what this Michigander would do. Out the door I would go. Why? Because suddenly my trust in this building has been changed by, and now I've got action. Am I right? So where you put your trust always will give you action. Every time. Right now, I'm not afraid. We're not afraid. We're sitting here just fine. But let this building begin to shake. I think all of you would be out the door, and I think I'd be right behind you. I think you're smart enough. You know. I, think, I don't think you'd sit here. Would you? No, good. You're reassuring me.
All he can do is he has to trust. The old song, you know, trust and obey. But remember, remember that the works are not the ground, not the beginning, not the foundation of your salvation. It is only the results, but it is a sure result. Does that make sense? All right, let me, let me go on because I, this gets good. This gets real good. Um, and then in verse 10, he says, you observe days and months and seasons. That, that's all sanctuary stuff that they gotten pulled back into, all the rituals, etc. See, a lot of people, sometimes they miss the point of Galatians. They forget what, what Paul is trying to do. Paul is trying to divorce them from depending on this earthly sanctuary for salvation, and he's trying to get them to depend on Christ for their salvation. You understand? He's trying to get them away from depending on the sanctuary plus Christ or Christ plus the sanctuary. He's trying to get them to depend on Christ. He's trying to break this relationship, this ill-gotten relationship with the babysitter. That's what Galatians is trying to do. Now, I want to go down, if you would, to verse 21. Tell me, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Now, some people, you know, they play little games here. I don't know if I want to get into this, but, they, you know, they play, okay, this is the Ten Commandments. You can't be saved by keeping, keeping the Ten Commandments. All that. That, that is not the picture here that Paul is doing. What Paul, and, and that's true. You can't just keep the Ten Commandments and say, now because, I, because I've kept the Ten Commandments, I can be saved. If you're saved by the grace of God, you will keep the Ten Commandments because you have found and put your trust in Christ Jesus. That makes sense? You have to get the cart. You've got to get the horse in front of the cart, not the cart in front of the horse. So it's not against the law, the Ten Commandments being obedient. It's not against obedience. People get all hung up in that kind of stuff. Paul is... Paul is clear about what he's trying to do here. Now, now listen to where he's going to go, because, and this is this is this is powerful to me. It speaks to me. Tell me, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, under the sanctuary, under the rituals, under under that that Jewish perversion, do you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondswoman, and another by a free woman. But he who was of the bondswoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds to Jerusalem, which now, now is... the perversion, if you please, which and is in bondage with her children. What's, 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 what's Paul doing here? You know the story, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, and I want to go to that story for just a moment. As you know, God promised Abraham that he would have a child, and someday through this child would come the promise and would bless all of us. And you remember that God keeps appearing to Abraham and, and in so many words, Abraham is saying, Lord, you know, I guess, you know, I, I have a solution to our problem. Well, God, of course, in this case, never had a problem. 
But, he, but Abraham thinks God has a problem, so he says, I've got Eliezer, my trusted servant, and he can be the inheritor. And God says, no, Eliezer is not going to be your son. And so in the course of time, Sarah has no babies, and finally she gets to the place that she, her womb is dead. It's not going to have babies in the normal kind of time. And um, one day she comes to Abraham and she says, you know, the custom around here is that if you have a servant, uh, a slave, a servant, that if that servant has a baby, it's really your baby because they're a slave, and, and uh, that's the way we could have a child. So I've got this lovely young Egyptian uh, uh, slave, servant, and so Abraham, why don't you sleep with her, make her your concubine or your sub-wife, and we'll have a baby by her, and, and this will be wonderful. And Abraham was foolish enough to accept And so he does, and he and Hagar have a baby called Ishmael. Ishmael is about 13 years old, 12 or 13 years old, when God shows up again, and he says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Abraham says, look, I've got Ishmael, and this is wonderful. And God says, no, Ishmael's not going to be the promise. By the way, this shows God's respect for marriage. Somebody should have said amen. He says, you and Sarah... You'll have a baby by Sarah. That's who I recognize. And she, and that baby will be. So, you know, in about a year, little Isaac comes along. And Isaac is a happy little guy. And Ishmael is not happy. By the way, Ishmael has learned all the arts of war. He can probably throw a spear within a hair's breadth so many feet away. Put an arrow through a pole. He, he's, he's, he's athletic. Abraham has taught him everything. Abraham has poured everything into this boy because he was figuring that this boy was going to take his place. This was Abraham's solution to God's promise. One day Sarah comes to Abraham and she says, Abraham, send this boy out of here. He's threatening the baby, baby Isaac. The Bible says, the Old Testament says that the thing grieved Abraham, that's a very strong word. Abraham says, I'm not going to do this. This is my boy. Don't you understand, Sarah? And he probably said, you know, you got me into this. <laughs> Maybe. But he says, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing this. I, I'm not sending my boy away. He's my son. That night, God appears to Abraham in a vision. And he says... To Abraham, in the morning, send Hagar and Ishmael away. I want to tell you that that must have been the toughest night of Abraham's life. And it is also a tribute to his great faith. Because he takes every natural emotion of his heart and his life. And after a sleepless night, gets up in the morning. I mean, you, put, you just put yourself through this for a minute. Can you imagine the reaction of Ishmael? Never mind Hagar. Can, can, you, can you hear Ishmael pleading with his father? Dad, do not send me. Dad, don't you love me? I mean, can't you hear it all? Can't can you hear them as Abraham ushers them to the borders of his camp and asks them to leave? knowing in his heart every emotion, ripping him to shreds inside, 
But despite that, he is putting his trust in God. Trusting that God will take care of Ishmael. By the way, it's uh, interesting that, again, God doesn't hold Sarah responsible for that. He holds Abraham responsible for that. Yeah. I mean, he said, the Lord said to Abraham, listen to what Sarah said. Yes, listen to what's at, at this point, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Not happy. It was a very unhappy situation. But I want to make a few observations. Abraham's choice to take Hagar, was that a choice of faith or a choice of works? It was Abraham coming up with his own solution to God's promise. Rather than trusting God's promise, he comes up with his own solution. Now follow it through. How much pain did it cause Abraham to get out of what he had messed up? Was it painful to return to trusting God? Now, I want to drive this home because this is, the, this is the essence of Christ our righteousness. We have made many illicit relationships in our lives. We have trusted lots of things. We've trusted people. We've trusted money. We've trusted employers. We've trusted husbands. We've trusted wives. We've trusted children. We've trusted this, that, or the other. You can put it in there. Because the human heart, the natural human heart, always has idols. And every time that you and I have developed an illicit relationship, you know, there's some people going to be lost because they love their car so much. They love the car more than they love Jesus. The only way that you can restore that trusting relationship with Jesus is to get rid of the illicit relationship. The question is, is how much... That's why Abraham's called a man of faith. This prepared the way for Mount Moriah. I think this was a worse night because he'd already been through this. When God came, he wasn't happy about asking God asking him to sacrifice Isaac. But he'd already been through this. And he concluded, according to, I think it's Hebrews, that God could resurrect Isaac from the ashes of the altar. He had that much trust in God. So he says, God, that's what you asked me to do. I'll do it. The, the question for you and for me from Galatians is, how much will we trust this over our emotions. I, I had a, somebody not long ago, and they were, they were, well, they, they came to me, and they were telling me what was going on in their life, and they said, am, am I making decisions that's messing up my life? And I said, you sure are. 
I mean, sometimes you need to be blunt. I says, let me tell you what your problem is. I said, over here are God's Ten Commandments, and over here are your emotions. And I says, you're deceived. You're right here. You're deceived. You think these emotions are you, and they're not you. I said, let me tell you what you is. You are your decisions. You are your choices. Your character is made up of what you decide to do. And what you're letting happen, you're letting these emotions control you instead of abiding by God's Ten Commandments. You see, Abraham decided to abide by God's command that night with Ishmael. And so when he challenged him with Isaac, he just simply said, I trust you, Lord. Are we willing to trust God? with? That's what righteousness by faith is all about. Are we willing to trust God with our life? Are we willing to trust the substitute that paid my penalty on Calvary's cross? Can I trust him? Am I willing to trust him? No, you don't trust the friendship of God. You trust the gift that came out of his heart of love. You trust Christ who gave himself. How can you trust, how can you trust in, in just, well, it's okay. No, you trust in what God gave you. He paid the penalty. Do you trust him to pay the penalty for your sins and to wipe them clean? Do you trust his power to transform you? Do you trust his, his directions for your life? Do you trust? That's why the just shall live by their faith. Now, notice, I see your hand, I'm coming. But I've got to drive this home. Forgive me. I want you to notice something. Here are the pagans. What was nature supposed to be? Come on, Adventist. It was to be a revelation of God. Am I right? It's God's second book, etc. So what did the pagans do? They made an illicit relationship with nature instead of the giver of nature. Follow me? So what did Israel do? with their sanctuary. They made an illicit relationship with their sanctuary. What did Abraham do with, A with Hagar? He made an illicit relationship. And every one of these relationships bore an Ishmael. And the only way home is to reject these illicit relationships of works and return to put your faith and trust in the giver of every good thing. Question and answer. Had Abraham been faithful and not made and the illicit relationship with Hagar, what would have been Hagar's role with Isaac? 
the babysitter. These were all given good, wonderful, healthy roles. There's nothing wrong with the sanctuary. There's nothing wrong with Mount Sinai. But it fulfilled its purpose as the babysitter, and we no longer need it. I'm talking about the earthly sanctuary. Am I right? When, when 5 o'clock comes, do we need Donna and Harlan any longer? No. We picked up the baby. Now listen to the punchline of Galatians. The punchline of Galatians is verse 26. But Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. No longer, what is in the heavenly Jerusalem? It's the heavenly sanctuary. The Christian now is no longer tied to an earthly sanctuary, to an earthly ceremonial system. We now have a heavenly sanctuary with a heavenly high priest who carries out the real ceremonial system for us. And what we have Seventh-day Adventists, our mission is to help the world to understand that we have to put our faith not in, I say this with sweet kindness, not in Mormon temples, not in Hindu temples, not in Catholic temples with the church where they believe the wafer's at, not in Protestant preaching. Preaching is good. You understand what I mean by that? Take your eyes off of men and put them on Christ who is in the heavenly sanctuary and who is the one alone who can save us and whose bloody nail-scarred hands, I should say nail-scarred hands, are evidence that he paid the penalty. And so when you pray, there's going to be an answer. When you put your faith in Him, you're putting your faith in the one you should. But please, don't make illicit relationships in this world. Now I'm going to take a question, and then I want to get back because I, I've, I've, got to, I've got to show you something else before I'm done. Now, it's 5.10, but I think supper's still 5.30, so I've got just a few more, few more minutes here that we can go. Right, speak up nice and loud for us. Yeah, her question is simply this. Yeah, sure. The, the question, if I got it right, you can nod your head, is she's, she's going to the, uh, there's the, um, well, let me give the question. Is what, how does this affect Ishmael? How does Ishmael figure into this? Is that a fair way of saying it? His, his own salvation. Right. 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 Where does that leave Ishmael? Okay. Where does that leave Ishmael and all of this? Okay. I want, I want to say there's two things here. Remember, 
Paul uses the word, I think he uses the word symbol here. In other words, he uses this story to illustrate a truth. Now you're moving to the practical part, and what about Ishmael? Has God forgotten Ishmael? And the, and the facts are that God gave the promise that night that he would take care of Ishmael. He, he, he swore on himself, I'll take care of you. You just trust me and let me take care of Ishmael. And, and that's what we have to do. Sometimes it's, it's like when my father, when my father lost his job when he became a Seventh-day Adventist over the Sabbath. My mother didn't work. He had two little boys at home. I remember the day he came home, put his hand on the, uh, the doorpost of our little porch there and said to my mother, you know, I've lost my job. He put his trust in God. And now he has to trust that God will take care of his family. There are some times in our lives when people have not trusted God, like Abraham. And then they make a mess. And then they come back to God. Does God still act from a practical sense in mercy for people? And the answer is he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God is still looking after Abraham. He's still pursuing Abraham, I mean, I, I, Ishmael, still pursuing Ishmael. Okay, I, I want to I take this just, if you, if you don't mind, I want to take this just a, a, a little bit further, um, talking about Ishmael. Let me, let me just drive this home just a little bit. W- was the hope of salvation for the ancient Andalusian world, was that hope in nature? Was the hope of salvation for ancient Israel, was that hope in the rituals of their sanctuary? Was, that, was, that, uh, uh, was Abraham's hope in Hagar for the promised son? It was only in Sarah. Am I right? So it was little Isaac in which all the hope of all of us uh, uh, came to. I, I want to, as you look at the heavenly sanctuary, at Jerusalem above is our mother. Then you are taken to the book of Revelation. I'm not turning to the book of Revelation. I'm just talking right now. You take it to the book of Revelation. And what do you see when you're introduced in the first chapter of the book of Revelation? What you see is Jesus as a high priest moving through what sanctuary? The heavenly sanctuary. And he moves through the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary. He moves through the candlesticks. He moves through the table of showbread, which I believe is the throne of God. And he also moves... And, and I could take some time on that if I have time. I'll watch on that. And he also comes to the altar of incense where the prayers come up. And then in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, I'm sorry, the Apostle John says he saw the heavens open and he saw the Ark of the Covenant. So that means that Jesus from chapter, the end of chapter 11 to the finish of, the, of Revelation uh, 19, that Jesus is now moving, I believe right this moment, moving through the Holy of Holies. Now, I've had people say to me, says, well, you know, Galatians says this sanctuary over here is, it's, it's the babysitter, it's no longer in use, so since the Ten Commandments are part of it, that means the Ten Commandments have been done away with, Right? And my response has been, for the sake of the argument, let's say you're right. You got quiet. For the sake of the argument, let's say you're right. But I said, um, 
you want to look at Hebrews chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 1, it says, Now the main point of the things that we are saying. Now I want to underline something here. Verse 1, chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews. The main point is the main point. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just underlining it. The main point is the main point. Am I right? Now the main point of the things that we are saying is that we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So I say to them, a minister, and it goes on, and a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not men. So I said the main point here of the book of Hebrews is that we do have a sanctuary in heaven. We have a heavenly high priest. Do you agree with that? Yes, we ha- you cannot deny that. Now, let me add, add something here. The early Christian church understood this clearly. It was lost in the apostasy, and the Reformation never really grabbed it back until the Adventists came along and understood it after 1844. And it is our business to restore this to the world so people know where to put their faith. I almost wanted to go off on a sidetrack. I think I will. I'll come back to this. I, <laughs> I, had a, I, I was in visiting sometime with, with someone, a lady, and um, her husband was not a member of the church. And, and he looked at me and he said, he said, um, he says, you know, I want to ask you a question. I said, okay, go ahead. He says, you know, you Adventists, he said, it's, it's, it's interesting. He says, you know, the Roman Catholics say they get their authority from the apostolic succession. And he says, the Mormons say they get their authority from a restored apostolic succession. And then he said, so where do you Adventists get your authority? Good question. Where do you get your authority? Well, I had, a, I had a fairly decent answer. I said, well, and I used Jesus' illustration, that if you're really the children of Abraham, you'll do the works of Abraham. So if you really want to be the children of Jesus, then you do the works of Jesus. That's a good answer. Nothing wrong with that answer. But I got to thinking about it. I was praying and riding in my car towards some meeting. And all of a sudden, it just like heaven came down and opened my mind and said, in essence, no, no voices, you understand. I, just impression. Just impression. And said, in essence, Jay, this, you get your authority from the heavenly high priest in the heavenly sanctuary when you put your faith in him. So if you put your faith in the high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, You have authority. So when you have an Adventist minister who has faith in the heavenly high priest, in the heavenly sanctuary, he has authority to baptize you. Somebody should have said amen. Amen. This church has authority as long as it has faith in Jesus in the context of the heavenly sanctuary. The reason the world will be deceived in the end of time is because they believe in Jesus without the context of the heavenly sanctuary. Chapter 8 of Hebrews. 
Verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle which God the Lord erected, not man. And then he uses the earthly sanctuary to be an illustration of the heavenly sanctuary. Verse 4, for if he, Christ, were on earth, in other words, if he were a priest on earth, well, he says he would not be a priest since there are, not, there are priests who offer gifts according to law. Now listen to verse 5, using the earthly sanctuary. Who serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern just shown on the mount. So I said, so that means, dear friend, that the earthly sanctuary has three elements. It has a shadow, a pattern, and a copy. So question and answer. If you've never seen a human hand and you've only seen the shadow of it, are there things that you can tell about that hand? Am I right? A lot of things, but you can't tell everything. Am I right? Lots of things you cannot figure out just from the shadow. So I said there's a lot of things that the earthly sanctuary has that are shadows of the heavenly that needs to be revealed to us. I believe they're revealed to us in the book of Revelation. I believe that certainly Moses saw it in heaven. And by the way, I've said this, I say it with sweet kindness, I will take the testimony of the Apostle John and Moses and Paul who saw the heavenly sanctuary over the imaginations of some theologians who don't think it exists. Thank you. I'm contending for the faith. So the other thing is a pattern. So in other words, this, this earthly sanctuary has a... You ladies understand the pattern. How many of you sewn from a pattern? Let me see here. Oh, a lot of hands. Okay. So you know that better. I watched my wife do it, you know, and you get this wrinkly little paper, thin paper, you know, and you stretch it out and you cut along the lines. But I'll tell you what, my, you'd never catch my wife in, in, the, in, the, in the pattern. <laughs> She's not going to wear the pattern. But the pattern helps to produce or give us an idea of what the real, am I right? But there's another word. It's called copy. Now we understand that clear. We have copy machines. We have fax machines. Am I right? A copy is not a shadow. A copy is a copy that looks just like the original. That make sense? So that means that the earthly sanctuary also had a part that was a copy. Tell me, what part of the earthly sanctuary was a copy? No, not the whole thing. No, not the high priest. Come on. I've heard it over here. Thank you, Dad. It's the Ten Commandments. Am I right? Did not God write those with his own finger? Were they not the copy? So I say, 
To my friends, I go then to Revelation 11 verse 19 and I read about John seeing the Ark of the Covenant open in heaven and I say to them, the issue, my dear friend, is not what you will do with that earthly Ten Commandments of which it was simply a copy, but what are you going to do with the heavenly Ten Commandments which are the originals of the copy? And that's what we say to our evangelical friends. That's what we say to our Roman Catholic friends and to our Mormon friends and to the whole Christian world as Seventh-day Adventists. It is what are you going to do with the Ten Commandments that are in heaven in the heavenly sanctuary? And let me tell you, Adventists have been right about the mark of the beast because the mark of the beast is in the context of the heavenly sanctuary, in the context of the Holy of Holies, in the context of the Ark of the Covenant and the heavenly Ten Commandments. The problem that the Christian world has today is that it's made an illicit relationship with its own philosophies and its own reasoning. And before Jesus comes, it's going to produce an Ishmael. whose hand is against everybody and everybody's hand is against him. It's utter confusion. It's called Babylon. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we are saved because we put our faith in the atoning blood of Christ Jesus. We are saved because He erases from us the penalty and forgives our sins. We are saved because of His great gift of Himself to us. And we are saved when we put our trust in Him. And because we have put our trust in Him, we go on in a new creation, in a living trust, and the Ten Commandments become our delight. Because, you see, the earthly sanctuary was a prophecy All of it pointed forward to Christ. He became the ceremonial law. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We believe in a real ceremonial law. That real ceremonial law is going on in heaven right now. We don't need the earthly sanctuary feast and all of those kinds of things which were only symbols. I don't know how people get caught up in that. They get caught up in that because they take their eyes off the heavenly sanctuary with a heavenly high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I believe in the Ten Commandments because Jesus became the living Ten Commandments. Now hear me out. When you are born again and it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, It is the Ten Commandments, the living Ten Commandments that are actually being lived out in your life by faith alone. That's why it's no longer an issue of whether we keep the Ten Commandments or not. The fact is that if you have, if by faith in your justification and you're being born again, you have the living Christ in you, now you pursue His holiness and He lives in you and He lives out His law in you. That's why Seventh-day Adventists who have Christ in them, are the hope of the world.
Let us pray. Father in heaven, may Christ in us be so precious to us that we will plead with you to keep us in your hands and never let us go. That we will say to you, O oh Lord God, we do not want to live a moment or an hour or a day without the living Christ. And may that union with Christ be so close and so firm that it becomes absolutely unbreakable and that Satan and all of his host, that wretched carnal nature that is dead by the grace of God, considered dead, that the world with all of its temptations, that they have no power to break that union that is sealed moment by moment in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.